Welcome to the Melton Forge Works podcast. I'm going to take you along on my day-to-day adventures in bladesmithing and blacksmithing. I'll be talking about the people involved in the craft and the tools and the methods that go along with it. So thanks for listening. Hello, it's now June 24th and um, I'm headed back into the office today. So I'm in the truck for a little bit. I thought I would talk about um, a topic for this particular podcast, um, which is in relation to what I've been working on in the shop the last day or so, um, and that's tooling. And so when I mean tooling, I'm talking about things like hammer dies, power hammer dies, uh, anvil tools, hydraulic press dies, um, you know, that kind of tooling. So things that you use to make other things. And uh, I'm as guilty as the next guy when it comes to using tools longer than you probably should. Um, and what, what I mean by that is you know that you can improve a tool, but it's still kind of getting the job done. So you put off the work that's going to be required to remake that tool and uh, or, to, or to make a new tool. Let's say you've got um, an idea for a jig or you've seen a, a jig that will make your life easier or will make a particular process in your making uh, better or easier and you want to make that thing, that jig or that tool... Um, it's been my experience that whenever I take the time to make good tooling or jigs, we're just going to name this episode Tooling and Jigs because I'm going to talk about jigs too. Whenever you take the time to make those things, you know, you're, you're taking away time that you could normally be using to make more stuff, you know, and like I said previously, time is your most valuable asset in the shop. It's the thing that you have the least, uh, usually the least amount of control over. And it's the only resource we have that is non-renewable. You're not, you're not getting any more of it. So I always kind of, when I know I need to make a tool or take a day off, uh, to make tooling or jigs, you know, I'm kind of like, uh, I gotta, I've got to, take time away to make these things, but it never fails that when I do take the time to improve a tool that I need or to make a new jig, the the time savings that I get on the back end from having a tool that works great or does a better job, you know, I generally it, it kind of pays you back. And so, you know, I just said that time is a non-renewable resource. You're not getting any more than you're given in this life, but but you can be more efficient with your time. And sometimes it's worth taking a bit of that time to improve a process or a jig or a tool because in the long run, it, it will help you save time. You know, it will help you prevent um, maybe making mistakes by using a tool that's kind of outlived its life. And so for me in the last couple of days, what's that, what that looks like is I've been making some new press dies, um, to help me in some of the aspects of hammer making. 
And so one of the dies I use most often are some round bar fuller dies that I use to put the fuller marks or the trough lines into hammers. And I've been using the same set of those fuller dies for well over a year now. And, you know, every once in a while the dies get messed up and you have to clean them up with an angle grinder or at the belt sander. And you you have to clean up marks and make sure they're still rounded off the way they should be. And over time, they, they kind of wear down and, uh, and they are not uniform in thickness or, you know, they might have different angles from one another. And, uh, and so that's what I was noticing with my current fuller dies is that when I would go and forge in the trough lines or fullers on a hammer, they would be a little canned you know, a little slightly angled off to one side. And it was because my dies had gotten a little bit messed up. And I noticed that it was happening and I was able to, I was able to account for it and to make up for that by moving the hammer billet in the opposite direction as I made those uh, squeezes on the press. And so I was, I was modifying my forging to compensate for a bad tool. And so I took some time over the last couple of days and I remade those fuller dies a little taller, slightly wider, and of course they're more perfectly rounded now. And um, and I just, while I was working on it, I was thinking about this topic about how um, every once in a while it's, it's well worth taking the time to make a new tool or or a jig to help you in your process. And and generally when I start doing that, when I start making or improving one tool, I start looking around the shop at other things that I need to uh, fix. And, uh, and so while I was working on the, on the fullering dies, I went ahead and made a new hammer eye punch, um, for the press. And, uh, for a long time, I've been using one that a guy named CJ Dufton uh, made for me, and it was a really good hammer eye punch. It's still useful, um, but it too has gotten a little short from use, and I've bent it a few times and had to straighten it back out, and so it's not quite as perfect as it once was, and so I uh, I grabbed a, a bar of H13 and uh, forged out a new hammer eye punch, and tacked that all to a die plate so I could make a new hammer eye punch. But um, anyway, I, I was just thinking about this idea of tooling and jigs and how it would be good to talk about in this podcast. So um, I've made some other jigs recently that, um, that, you know, again, I wasn't the inventor of this particular idea. I think I talked about it in a previous podcast, but the adjustable hump tools or the adjustable drifting jig. Um, I worked on that a little bit too yesterday because um, when I'm using that, sometimes I use it under the power hammer and that really beats a tool up. And uh, so I had to re-weld on that a little bit. But I know that once I get all this tool improvement done, the next time I go to make a hammer, um, it will probably go better and faster than it has been before because I won't have to keep, I won't have to keep making up 
for the bad tool. I won't have to adjust my forging or drift left or right to make up for the weird angle in a tool. I'll just be able to press in those marks or fuller lines and, and keep going. So anyway, I feel like I'm kind of rambling on about this topic now. So I'm going to close off this segment and just say that taking the time to make your own tooling or improve it is almost always, always worth it. So see you in the next segment. Bye. Okay, so it's still Wednesday, uh, June 24th, but it's in the evening now. Um, my daughter plays volleyball, and I'm actually sitting in the parking lot of the big building where they practice right now, um, waiting for their team to get finished. But um, I had a few minutes, so I thought I would talk about um, something I came across today. So like most guys that are in uh, some kind of craft, you know, you're, you're constantly watching all the various places like Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace and whatnot for different tools that come up for sale. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about a dust collection system that I had put together using a shop vac and a little five gallon bucket um, dust separator that I got from Harbor, I mean from uh, Home Depot. And uh, anyway, I gave that a shot a couple weeks ago, and initially I thought it was going to work really well um, to help cut down the dust in the shop, particularly when I'm grinding wood handles. Um, but I, after grinding two or three handles, I found out um, within a few days that the diameter of the hose on that shop vac is just too small for really effective dust collection. Most dust collection systems have hoses that are like four inches in diameter. And what was happening was I'd go to grind a hickory handle and I would generate so much thick sawdust so quickly uh, in the funnel below the grinder that it would clog up the hose. And um, I tried several different things to stop that from happening, but it just kept happening. And once that hose clogged up, um, it was done, you know, dust was just going everywhere again. And so anyway, long story short, like I said, you know, I watch all these different uh, marketplace uh, ads for tools and a dust collection system popped up today for a hundred bucks. I mean, it was a complete two horsepower dust collection and the guy had added a one micron filter bag to it. Um, and it came with a bunch of hoses and uh, some other accessories. I mean, it was for a hundred bucks for all that. So I went and picked that up today and um, during my lunchtime. And uh, when I got home, I got to play with it just a little bit. I plugged it all up and, and plugged it up to the dust catcher that I had built for the shop vac. And immediately it was a world of difference. I started grinding on another piece of hickory and I mean, almost every bit of the dust that I could see was going straight down into that tube and being whisked away. So it's going to be really nice to not have all my tools and tooling covered in wood dust. Uh, because the way I normally work is I'll kind of wait until I have to grind several handles all at once. And I'll grind these handles for hammers or axes or whatever. And uh, when I'm done, without this dust collection system in place, when I'm done, there is literally like a, a two-inch thick layer or carpet 
of hickory sawdust uh, like in a six foot area around me you know after grinding these handles it's just it's a monster mess and so normally what I would do is just take a broom and a dustpan and dust uh, sweep up you know the majority of the bulk and throw that in the garbage can and then I would grab a leaf blower and roll up the shop door and I would just blow all the dust out and uh, and that works pretty well but it stirs up so much fine dust matter that then coats my power hammer and my press you know those tools are constantly covered in oil and grease anyway and so when that sawdust gets in the air it turns all that oil and grease into this oily greasy sawdust pancake kind of material that's all over the tools and so I've really been hoping to try to avoid that and I was able to add a tool to the shop today that I really think is going to help with that a whole lot. So anyway that was kind of a nice surprise today to come across that and to be able to add it to the shop. So I was thinking uh, again back to the original topic of the podcast uh, tools and tooling or jigs and tooling. Um, I've been thinking about tooling storage, particularly in regards to um, all the spring fuller tools that I have for the power hammer and all the different die plates that I have for my for my hydraulic press. Right now, if you walked into my shop right now and looked at the base of my hydraulic press, just strewn about the floor underneath the press, there's about a dozen different die plates and I've got a couple of five gallon buckets that are full of die plates and then I have two milk crates that are full of die plates and you know they're just constant as I come up with different dies that I want to make you know it's just constantly growing this massive amount of heavy die plate tooling that's just collecting in buckets in the shop and so I've, I've really been struggling with trying to come up with some way to better store these die plates. Um, I've seen some guys with the same kind of press that I have where they actually make kind of an angle iron frame that hangs on the side of their press and then they weld on little bars, little small like 3 8 inch rod bars uh, to make small racks for all their die plates so they can hang those literally on the press themselves. And sometimes they'll drill a hole in the die plate so they can hang the dies on uh, on those rods. And uh, so that's kind of something along the lines of what I'm thinking of doing. Um, but I'm just not sure where to put it in the shop. So I'm thinking I might try to dedicate a section of wall where I make some kind of a uh, die plate organizer of some kind and now the spring fuller tools they're kind of in the same condition I've got a bucket of those sitting right beside the the power hammer and then in the tool tray right below the power hammer uh, it's just littered with all kinds of tools right now too so I need to come up with some way to uh, organize all that all that tooling you know and and that's something I got uh, to thinking about uh, with this tools and tooling is you know the longer you do this kind of stuff the more this tooling and jig um, equipment just kind of starts to collect in piles 
And if you ever walked into a, a blacksmith shop of a guy that's been doing it for a long time, you know, there's just stuff everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere. And, and a great example of that was I took a, a, a power hammer tools class with Clay Spencer last year. And um, he has a really nice shop right beside his home. And, um, you know, you could just tell that this guy had been doing power hammer forging for a long time because he had built these uh, wooden storage racks for all this different spring fuller tooling. And I mean, it was, there were hundreds of different kinds of spring fullers and uh, handheld top tools and punches and just all manner of tools and um, it was really pretty cool to see you know basically a lifetime's worth of tooling that had been made um, in the shop and you know part of me was kind of wondering man how does Clay find the tool that he needs when he you know when he needs to find it but it's probably like me I mean even though I have buckets of, of things laying around the shop I can generally tell you in which bucket a particular tool might be um, I guess over time as you hang these things up and scatter them around your shop you know you you, re, you remember for the most part kind of where they're at but um, his wooden rack system that he had built for his uh, power hammer tools was pretty cool and I think I might duplicate something along those lines but if you've got some ideas for tool storage or jig storage man I'd love to hear it so uh, hit me up with a message if you've got some ideas for that I would uh, absolutely love to uh, bounce the idea back with some people so anyway I'll uh, talk to you in the next segment later oh well it's been a while so it's been several days since I recorded anything. Uh, today is July the 2nd, it's a Thursday. It's lunchtime. I'm headed into town to take a couple of packages by the mail to send them off, a couple of hammers that got done. I've got a one pound ball peen and a two pound rounding hammer going out. And, uh, well, it's been an eventful few days, so let me catch you up. I think the last thing I said, I was talking about the dust collector, which, um, man, that's been a huge, huge help in the shop. It's one of those things, it's kind of like a welder, you know. Uh, when I first got a welder, I, I wondered, man, how did I go so long without having a welder in the shop? And this dust collection system is just the same. I've been grinding, you know, hammer handles on my belt sander for for a long time and you know it's just it's it's part of the hammer making process that I don't really enjoy because primarily because of the mess that it makes. You know, it dust just gets everywhere. A fine dust coats everything in the shop as far into the corner reaches of the shop as it can get. That fine hickory dust travels to those places and um and i've just had to deal with it and use a leaf blower and you know a broom or whatever to sweep up all that stuff and try to clean up the shop and keep the tools clean and man this dust collector i keep ranting and raving about it but it's just it's one of those things that makes a process more enjoyable and anytime 
I can add a tool to the shop that makes a process more fun or more enjoyable, that's just huge. And, uh, and so now grinding handles is basically dust free for me. And that's huge. So anyway, I've been playing around with that a lot and trying to figure out how to uh, add a spark arrestor so that I don't burn my shop down by throwing a spark into a big bucket full of sawdust. But uh, for now, I've been just grinding metal into a bucket full of water and then reattaching the the dust collector when I grind uh, wood. Um, but anyway, I, I've gotten a couple of maybe three hammers made since I last talked to you. And um, in the middle of all that, um, somehow I got metal in my eye again. And uh, so I think it was Friday that I first noticed that my eye was irritated. And I really, I honestly can't recall when I got something in my eye. I don't, I don't remember, you know, flinching and thinking, oh man, I got something in my eye. I just remember Friday evening, uh, my eye was hurting. It was starting to irritate me. And so anyway, I, I, I had my wife and daughter kind of look in my eye and they didn't really see anything. And so I woke up the next day on Saturday and it was even worse. You know, it was still hurting. And so I got a flashlight out and got my daughter to get her uh, camera on her phone and to zoom in on my eye. And she said, oh gosh, you've got a speck in your eye. And she could see it, took some pictures of it. And, um, and sure enough, it was a little piece of metal stuck uh, into the colored part of my eye. Uh, just perfectly little round, uh, perfectly round little dot stuck to my eye. And at this point, it was getting to be pretty uncomfortable. And so I, uh, I called my eye doctor because this is not the first time this has happened. Um, I called my eye doctor and uh, they basically said um, it was pretty late in the day Saturday. It was Saturday night by the time I called them, called the after hours number. And, and they said, you know, if you can make it to tomorrow, which would be Sunday, we'll get a doctor to see you. And so I, uh, I slept on it and, um, woke up the next day and then was even in more pain and wound up meeting the eye doctor. It was just me and him. He unlocked the building. We went inside. Of course we had to follow these crazy coronavirus rules and um, but anyway, he took me inside, sat me down in the chair, he numbed my eye up, and then he proceeded to take a, a needle and he plucked the little speck out of my eye. And then he took a small drill, which looks uh, extremely similar to a small Dremel. And he uh, drilled out the area where the metal was because uh, those of you that have had metal get stuck in your eye, you know about this. It it will create a rust channel in your eye. And it's not so much the foreign body that causes the irritation. It's the rust that winds up irritating you. So anyway, they have to like, they have to drill that rust out, basically make a little crater in your eye, which uh, pretty much puts you in a situation where you've got a scratched eyeball, you know. So then he numbed me up a little bit more and sent me home with some antibiotic drops. And uh, so that's kind of been my week uh, dealing with that. And it's, it's Thursday now. I'm feeling a lot better. My eye is feeling almost normal today. So anyway, I say all this to tell you a big warning. 
you know, keep your safety glasses on at all times. Uh, this happened to me uh, a little over a year or so ago. Um, I know what happened then. I had a piece of scale fly off and stick to my eyeball and I had to have the same procedure done. And um, I, I was not wearing safety glasses when that happened. This time, or since then, I've been really good about wearing my safety glasses. Um, you know, whenever I'm in the shop working, uh, but I've been doing a lot of other stuff lately, tearing out cabinets and using a Sawzall cutting, you know, nails and stuff like that with a Sawzall blade. And so I don't know when this happened. It could have happened doing some of the kitchen construction and it could have happened in the shop. You know, a piece of metal could have flown underneath my glasses and stuck to my eye. But, um, in any case, you know, you, you don't want to go through this. So wear your safety glasses when you're doing anything and make sure they're hugging your face pretty tight so the stuff can't get in or around. So anyway, that's my safety rant for today. I'm probably going to wrap this podcast podcast up with, uh, with this segment and, um, not sure what I'm going to talk about in the next episode. I've been doing a good bit of forging lately on these hammers. I've got some knives coming up. I've got to work on. So I don't know, maybe we'll talk knives and knife making uh, a little bit in the next podcast, but in any case, I'll see you then. Bye. I wanted to add a note to the end of the podcast, um, just to give a shout out to Chance Witten. Um, he's Witten Woodworking over on Instagram and, um, we grew up in the same, uh, hometown and, uh, he came by and did a one day hammer class with me and, uh, we forged out a three pound rounding hammer. It's the first time I've taught a hammer class, um, in many months. And, uh, I forgot how much fun it was to teach and to, um, show somebody the ropes of forging and, um, Boy, it was just just a good time to forge with somebody else in the shop for a little while. And um, so uh, if you want to see pictures of Chance's hammer, you can check that out on uh, Instagram. I think it was also the first hammer that I got to use my new touch mark uh, with. I'm, I'm still touch marking with my Melton logo, but I'm also doing uh, some hammers with a Mississippi logo stamp. And so Chance is a craftsman here in Mississippi. So his hammer got the uh, Mississippi State outline on the other side of it too, which I think is pretty cool. So anyway, just kind of wanted to throw that in at the end here. See you next time. Bye. Okay. Well that wraps up episode 28. Um, this is probably a bit of a rambling episode. I didn't have a really good solid topic for this one. And sometimes there's a loud bird. And sometimes that's going to be the way it is. I'm just not going to have a perfect topic for each podcast, and I'm just going to talk about what's going on. So um, thanks for sticking with me through that. And um, I do have a good uh, topic for the next podcast. I've been thinking about it a good bit over the last day. And uh, so uh, look forward to that. See you then. Bye.